Hello, everybody. My name is Rich. Long time no talk. First, I guess I should explain what I'm doing here. I kind of just want to talk about Philadelphia sports. And since I don't have much of a platform at the moment, figured why not make a podcast? And if you're not familiar with me, which plenty of people aren't, although you probably are if you're listening to this, I have mainly covered the Sixers for the better part of this past decade. And yes, that is a long ass time to focus on the Philadelphia 76ers. It wasn't all bad. Unlike the 10 years that preceded this past decade, it certainly wasn't boring. But again, that is a long ass time to focus on the Philadelphia 76ers. And it's not like I'm going to stop. Ball is very much life. But I've had a lot of free time this summer, and I found myself watching a lot of baseball. And as I have watched all of these Phillies games, noted baseball watcher that I am, I wondered maybe I try something different, even if it's just for one or two times. Who knows? So that's what I'm doing today. Instead of writing about the Sixers, maybe I try talking about all the Philly sports teams. After all, I'm a fan of those other teams. I've even covered all of them at different times throughout this past decade. And yes, there is some truly horrific hockey writing from yours truly in the Philly Voice archive somewhere. So that's all I want to do here. And on the topic of Philadelphia sports, you know something I've been bummed about for a while? Comcast Sportsnet. Today, Comcast Sportsnet is known as NBC Sports Philadelphia. But for the rest of this podcast, I'm going to call it CSN, as it was known shorthand in its heyday. And before I get started, this is not a shot in any of the people who currently work or the people who have worked at CSN. That includes Michael Barkan and Amy Fadul, who were the two mainstays. That includes everyone else who's in front of the camera, everyone who works behind the scenes, the people who work on the game broadcast, those who work on the pregame and postgame shows. I'm not bummed because of any of their work. I think they're a bunch of talented people who do a fine job with the resources they have. The problem, of course, lies in those resources. CSN has less of them than they did 10 years ago and way, way less of them than 25 years ago. I think back to some of the things they used to do on air and just crack up because it would never happen now. They had a segment called I Beat Pete where one of the anchors would challenge random people to increasingly insane sporting contests. They had the security guard to their offices at the Wells Fargo Center regularly interview movie stars. And we're talking legit movie stars. They had resources, which allowed them to try goofy shit. And for the most part, it rocked. Now they have fewer resources, much fewer. And they do the best they can. They have shows like Sportsnet Central. They have the pre and post game shows. They simulcast formerly Mike and now Tyrone's radio show on 97.5, which I've been lucky to be on a bunch. But they do have fewer resources. And the internet is primarily to blame here. You know, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Reddit, blogs, all that shit made something like Sports Rise, CSN's morning highlight show, completely obsolete. You can get all that stuff on your phone or computer, not just that night, but as it happens. So maybe that's what I'm more bummed about. 
not that their product has declined as much as the fact that I don't need their product like I used to. This is turning into a bit of a back in my day segment, but oh well, like I love sports rise. I feel like Ron Burke was usually the morning anchor, but I could be wrong about that. And when CSN first launched in 1997, sports rise was a revelation. This was still right in the peak of the years of sports center with those legendary anchors like Dan Patrick, Stu Scott, Keith Olbermann before he had a Twitter account and kind of revealed himself for who he is. And it was great. But as a seven-year-old sports crazed kid, I had to wait for the Phillies, Flyers, or Sixers highlights to show up at some point during the hour or 90 minutes or however the hell long SportsCenter was at that point. And CSN changed all that. All of a sudden, I would wake up before school, turn on Sports Rise, and right there, all those highlights were brought to you in less than 30 minutes. It was pretty sweet. So no, I am not Ron Burke, but I thought to start, I would go over what happened in the past day, or in this case, the past few days in Philly sports. As luck would have it, it's been a lot, honestly. Let's start with the Phillies, who came back to earth this weekend. They scored 13 runs against the ghost of Dallas Keuchel on Friday. I guess it wasn't all just Dallas Keuchel. There was also the position player who imitated Craig Kimbrell and then threw the slowest pitch I've ever seen that Johan Rojas hit out for a home run. But it it was mostly Dallas Keuchel. And it was almost like because of that night, they weren't ready to face good pitching the next two days. They scored one run over their next 18 innings, getting shut down by Pablo Lopez and Sonny Gray. It stunk, honestly. And in Sunday's loss, the biggest play, unfortunately, was not Sonny Gray striking somebody out or you know a great play in the field by one of the Twins to rob the Phillies for a hit, although there was an unlucky double play that finished the game. No, it was, it was a missed call that went against the Phillies. The Phillies were down 2 nothing in the bottom of the seventh with the bases loaded and two outs. And after Kyle Schwarber pops up, not great, by the way, Alec Bohm comes to the plate. And frankly, that's exactly the guy you want up in that spot. Bryson Stott would certainly suffice as well, but Bohm is the guy you really want up in that spot. He leads the team in both batting average. He's hitting 359. And he has an OPS of 885 with runners in scoring position. Bohm has done an incredible job of going the other way in big spots. He just shoots the ball to the right side, and it's been awesome to watch. It's been fun. So Bohm, unsurprisingly, has a great at-bat. He works a full count, and then he takes ball four inside. The only problem is that Alex McKay, a call-up umpire, Calls ball for a strike, and it is a terrible call. They showed the overhead angle, and by the time it gets to the plate, it's just, it's not even close. It's not one of those dreaded too close to take pitches either. It's just, just bad. And there's a Twitter account that I love to look at, not really because I view it as the be all end all, but more so just to confirm my priors when I'm mad about umpiring. It's called Ump Scorecards, and it's certainly popular among baseball fans. It has over 300,000 followers, and it basically goes over how the home plate umpire fared during a specific game. That umps accuracy on balls and strikes, 
which team got favored, if any, those type of things. And usually I like to look at ump scorecards after CB Bucknor or Angel Hernandez just paint one of their masterpieces. So I go to ump scorecards after this game and I was surprised to see that McKay called a pretty good game overall. 141 of the 144 pitches that got taken were correctly called. That's good for 98%. But because McKay missed that boom call, um scorecard said that the Twins got a 1.57. They got favored by that amount of runs, basically, because of the calls. And it, it really, it's a huge number. Not many are as accurate as Alex McKay was. That was that was a good performance just in terms of total balls and strikes that he called. But almost no umpires are as one-sided as McKay. And I, I looked up all of the ump scorecards over the past week, and the last game that was more one-sided than Phillies Twins on Sunday was Yankees White Sox like six days before. And if you didn't see it. It was the game where Aaron Boone went ballistic and started mimicking Laz Diaz and he got ejected, which was very funny. And say what you want about Aaron Boone as a manager, but his ejections are typically pretty memorable. But back to the Phillies and McKay, that one-sided score is all due to one call. The right call gets made there. He's basically pitching a shutout. The score is 2-1, and you have Bryce Harper at the plate with the bases loaded. That would have been pretty cool. And it was pretty funny to see Bohm lose it, because you don't really associate him as a hothead or anything. And, and of course, him losing it was warranted. As Bohm is casually flipping the bat back towards the dugout after what he rightfully assumes is a walk, the strike three call gets made, and he immediately kind of rotates his wrist and changes into an angry bat spike. And what was funny about it is that bat spike looked pretty similar to Reese Hoskins' celebratory bat spike against the Braves last year in the divisional series after he hit that three-run home run, and I believe it was game three. So Bohm also slams his helmet, and then he gets tossed from the games, which, again, you don't usually see from him. And just because of that one call... The fans let McKay have it the rest of the game. Ref, you suck. An old basketball favorite of mine got remixed into ump, you suck. And then Rob Thompson eventually gets tossed from the game after Harper gets rung up on what was more of a borderline strike three. I I think that one was probably too close to take. And look, that was a game-changing bad call, as I've pretty much laid out there. But the Phillies' offense deserves a lot of blame here. They went 0 for 14 with runners in scoring position on Saturday and Sunday, which happens, but still not great. And I think what bothers me the most is that those bats going silent over the weekend put a damper on what was a really positive homestand. I mean, it it felt like the Phillies did a lot of really good things over the past 10 days. Of course, you have Michael Lorenzen's no-hitter and... Weston Wilson's incredible story, and you have Castellanos get back on track with his two home runs. And it's kind of funny that he was like on page six that night, even though he had a huge game. You have Trey Turner taking the very generous reception from the Philadelphia fans, 
making good use of it and getting back on track. That's good to see because he was looking hopeless in the previous few weeks, you know, just completely lost as a baseball player. And it was really a feel-good homestand in a lot of ways. You know, the Phil scored seven and a half runs per game over their first eight games, but bats go silent, and they finished just six and four because of that on the homestand. I don't know. It, it feels like a missed opportunity, but oh well. It's baseball sometimes, I guess. And, and there was one other note I had from the weekend, is that Taiwan Walker wasn't very good on Saturday. Hashtag analysis. He, uh, <laughs> he walked six guys in five innings, and even before Saturday start, we started to see a troubling trend in his last two outings against Miami and Kansas City, and that's that his velocity is just considerably down at the beginning of these games. Now, to his credit, Walker is both, you know, he's a veteran, so he's both smart and resilient. He settled down and ended up pitching into the seventh inning both times, which is something you see a lot out of this Phillies staff outside of Aaron Nola. And, and of course, the Phillies win both of those games, but, you know, even when these guys don't always have their best stuff, Guys like Walker and Ranger Suarez specifically, it feels like they battle and get deep into the ballgame. But look, I mean, Walker's early velocity dip, it's, it's a disturbing sign. It's not something that you want to see heading into the playoffs, and it certainly didn't change against Minnesota. According to Paul Casella of MLB.com, his four-seam fastball averaged just 91.2 miles per hour on Sunday. And that was the lowest in all of his 191 career outings. So the Phillies have decided to not pitch Walker this week. I don't know if that qualifies as skipping a start, but they're going to keep Chris Sanchez in the rotation this week, despite the fact that the Phillies have a couple days off and the original plan was to reassess the six-man rotation after all of those consecutive games were over. The six-man rotation does give the Phillies some flexibility here, though. Sanchez has pitched well, and adding Michael Lorenzen has certainly boosted the depth. You know, hashtag analysis there as well. But the six-man rotation allows the Phillies to rest their starting pitchers when they need to. And hopefully this is a case of just late-season dead arm for Walker, but that dude certainly needs some rest right now. And even though the fact that the Phillies had a rough weekend, they're still in a good spot. They're at the top of the wildcard race right now, and hopefully this is just a blip. But Walker's dead arm is part of a pretty interesting storyline to me moving forward, and that's what the hell does the playoff rotation look like for this team outside of Zach Wheeler? Aaron Nola is almost assuredly going to be part of the rotation, but, like, man, that isn't going to feel great if he doesn't start to pitch a lot better. And hopefully some rest does Walker good, but I would not feel awesome throwing him in his current state with the lack of velocity. Suarez and Lorenzen are candidates to be bullpen pitchers because of their versatility. But even if Lorenzen isn't actually Cliff Lee 2.0 and he's been pitching over his head a little bit in these first couple of games, he sure feels like a pretty good candidate to start games in the playoffs. And then Ranger, last postseason was great. He feels like a guy who was so carefree that the big moments in October don't phase him. And my guess is he won't be part of the rotation but Christopher Sanchez has been pretty good too. So that's going to be something to watch over the next six weeks because the guys who have less versatility are not pitching quite as well, and the guys who do have versatility are. So I don't know. It's something to keep an eye on for the next couple of weeks as the Phillies hopefully 
I, I think the goal here should be lock down that top wild card spot. You're not catching the Braves. But hopefully, you know, they, they get that first series at home in front of a raucous Citizens Bank Park. That should be the goal. All right. I guess that brings us to the Sixers. I wasn't planning on talking all that much about the Sixers, but right before the Eagles and Phillies were playing on Saturday night, they let Woj know, big coincidence here, I'm sure, that they are ending James Harden trade talks and plan on bringing him back to training camp. According to Woj, the team, quote, believes it will be a championship contender with Harden's return alongside MVP center Joel Embiid and the team is determined to find a way to make it work with Harden this season. End quote. Championship contender with an unquestionably worse roster than last year and an older and unmotivated James Harden. Hmm. And then after that, shortly after that, my friend Sam Amick reported, quote, no matter what signals the Sixers might send when it comes to trade talks. A source close to Harden reiterated that the 10-time All-Star and former MVP no longer wants to play for Philadelphia and has no plans of taking part in training camp. Does that mean he won't report if a deal doesn't go down by that point? Or that he'll make a messy spectacle of his training camp arrival like he did when he was trying to get out of Houston back in December of 2020. That part remains unclear, with Harden's side still expressing a belief that there will be meaningful developments on the trade talk front before that time comes. End quote. So, there you have it. Did anything really change here at that point? No, not really. James Harden does not want to play for the Sixers, but to make the most money this year, he had to opt in to one final year with the Sixers at $36 million. For their part, the Sixers don't want to give Harden long-term money, but they don't want to trade him either. So it's a complete mess. All I've heard is that Daryl Morey loves being uncomfortable. Well, he got his wish, because that is very much what this is. But then, you know, instead of doing the dueling leaks and reports and trying to get your messaging out that way, Harden said, screw it. He decided to up the ante. And in a video that hit the internet Monday morning, he said at a public event, and this is real, quote, Daryl Morey is a liar and I will never be part of an organization that he's a part of. Let me say that again. Daryl Morey is a liar and I will never be part of an organization that he's a part of, end quote. If those comments were not shocking enough, like dramatic as the NBA is, you rarely see something get this personal. The line is always, this is a business. Nope, this situation is clearly more than that. Harden made those comments at some sort of camp or event in China of all places. Like imagine being a huge fan of his and there are a ton of Chinese people that qualify as such. Basketball is very popular there, and Harden in particular is huge there. Huge. So imagine going there and just, you know, wanting to see one of your basketball idols, maybe hearing him say, man, I love my Chinese fans. And instead, he goes with, Daryl Morey is a liar. 
<laughs> Look, we, I don't know the context that was surrounding that video. If he got asked a question or he just said it off the cuff. But truthfully, I don't know what context would not make it so absolutely ridiculous that all you can do is laugh. And laugh I did until I thought about the geopolitical implications of Harden saying Daryl Morey is a liar in China. Are those comments going to like lead the state-run news broadcasts and be on the, the front page of their newspapers? Say, say what you want about Daryl Morey, but that part is kind of messed up. I'm going to take a broader view of the Sixers in a little bit, but what I will say right now is going to be more focused on Harden. Don't worry. The Sixers will get theirs. But what is evident here above everything to me is that Harden has made some really, really bad business decisions over the past few years. In the 2021 offseason, before everything in Brooklyn went to shit, the Nets threw a $161 million three-year extension at him. And now, all Harden can get is one year, $36 million. He has fumbled the bag in a way that few players have. And there's no way he's going to get that money back. He, he can't recoup it. There is not a free agent market for Harden, nor a trade market for him. Like, none at all, which I think is both perfectly understandable and also really wild. This was, in my opinion, pretty comfortably, one of the best 25 players in the sport last year. He was really good all regular season. He turned into more of a playmaker. He picked his spots to play, as Zach Lowe once called it, James Ball. He played a massive part in helping Joel Embiid win the MVP, and more than anything, he kept some miles off the big fella. Unlike previous years, Joel did not have to work quite as hard for his points because he received approximately a thousand wide-open free-throw line jumpers that came from the pocket pass that James Harden threw him in the pick-and-roll. And frankly, while Harden's postseason was insanely up and down. I mean, one of the most up and down, inconsistent postseasons you'll ever see, that variance really could have worked out for the Sixers. It is indisputable that Harden won two games against Boston single-handedly. Two of them. And if Embiid has one game, particularly game six, that's the one that stands out to me, where he puts his foot down and says, I'm the best player in the world, and I am sick of losing in the second round, Harden's variance would have been good enough to get the Sixers past Boston. And then who knows? Maybe they lose to Miami. Maybe they get killed by Denver in the finals. But now we'll never know. And I think what I'm trying to say here is that with my expectations heading into last year, I thought Harden did pretty well. I think his season is being a little underrated both locally and nationally. I don't expect him to be a consistent playoff performer anymore. Sure, during his prime, when again, he, he wasn't a consistent playoff performer, but was an MVP caliber player in the regular season. Yeah, that was more disappointing. But I think as a number two now, he roughly fulfilled his, his role. He gave the Sixers a lot last year. That ship has sailed that he's going to be, you know, a 1A guy at all times. And normally, guys with his profile get paid. But Harden is not like most guys. He's about to turn 34, and everyone including Daryl Morey, is right to be a little bit worried about how he'll age and how much, you know, like on those drives, like how much is he going to need to use the basketball as a weapon moving forward? How many fouls is he going to draw? His shooting numbers at the basket, both volume and accuracy, they went the wrong way last year. 
And that matched up with the eye test. I will never forget that game four in Brooklyn when the Sixers were without Embiid. Sixers win the game. Shout out to Tobias and B-Ball Paul. Harden could not make a layup to save his freaking life. It was painful to watch. And newsflash, that stuff probably isn't getting better. He shot the three at 39% last year. And while that was great, particularly the catch and shoot stuff he added, which culminated in that game four winner against Boston, you know, he got over a mental hurdle and used that to drain an insanely clutch shot in a playoff game. That was great. But what happens if that regresses? Like as many catch and shoot shots as he took last year, this is a guy who relies on the step back three, which is inherently an up and down shot. If those step backs don't go in quite as much, where does that leave him? And the other problem is that finding the right context for Harden is hard. Let's say you're a playoff team. The lows are really, really low. Just think back to that playoff series against Boston. Two A pluses. One game that was like a B. Just a nice solid floor game. And that was the game that the Sixers all played well in. And then four D minuses or Fs. You know, if you're a playoff team, you have to deal with those poor games. And that's just individual performance. If your star is a ball dominant player, how does Harden fit into a team system? I would argue that he is in the process of leaving the two best situations for him in the league. Like, say what you want about Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, and I can say plenty. But on the court, those guys are both good at, and more importantly, they're willing to play off the ball. And with Joel Embiid and Tyrese Maxey as your running mates in Philly, You have two guys who can initiate offense themselves, but what they really excel at in different ways is being a play finisher. So last year, the Sixers let Harden have the second highest time of possession in the league. The only person who had the ball more than Harden on a per game basis was Luka Doncic. And after the season, Harden, after playing what was probably the perfect role for him, was blabbing on and on about all the sacrificing he did this past year. And look, I I think for the most part, he was talking about the money because the money is very much the issue right now in the offseason. But man, on the court, he's currently asking out of what is close to the ideal situation for him. Maybe the Clippers are a good spot, but that requires Paul George, and in particular, Kawhi Leonard, to take a little bit of a step back. The Clips need a point guard. Don't get me wrong. I think Harden isn't the worst fit there, but those guys like having the ball in their hands too. So, you know, there there might be some growing pains as well. And for a rebuilding team, why would you want to be in the James Harden business? You wouldn't. He quit on his last two teams and he's in the process of quitting on a third. If you have young players you want to develop, is Harden going to be okay getting off the ball and letting those guys make mistakes and develop at their own pace? Houston, the franchise that Harden had the entire league convinced that he was going to all season. And my God, it's insane how much ink got spilled about that reunion that did not come to fruition. All the way back to the Woad story on Christmas Day before the Sixers were about to play a game. Houston, when it comes time to shit or get off the pot, they say, no thanks, James. 
we'll give two worse players than you a combined $60 million. And for what it's worth, most Sixers fans, from what I can tell, they don't want him back either. Of course, the liar comment brings up the dominant story of last offseason. And that was Harden stunningly taking a $15 million pay cut, which allowed the Sixers to sign both P.J. Tucker and Daniel House Jr. When he talks about sacrifice, okay, that, that is a legit sacrifice. And if you remember, those moves generated a lot of controversy. The league investigated the Sixers for tampering, which resulted in them getting docked a couple of second-round picks. But if you recall the details of that investigation, it was a two-parter. The less serious charges that the Sixers made early illegal contact with Tucker and House, that's what the Sixers got found guilty of and ultimately docked the picks for. But the more serious charge that Harden and the Sixers had a handshake deal for him to take less money last season and get made whole this offseason, that would qualify as salary cap circumvention. They didn't get found guilty for that. And now we've seen how that's turned out. Maury certainly didn't give him a big deal this offseason. And while nobody knows the exact details of what went on in those meetings last summer, Harden might be bringing that more serious charge to the forefront here if he doesn't get his wish. Harden could just be talking about Maury not honoring his trade request this offseason when he calls him a liar, but I don't know. Maybe it's a bit of both, but it could get really, really ugly for the Sixers. And that's, again, Daryl Morey, he loves being uncomfortable. Well, he's about to get his wish. And I think more than anything, it's absolutely stunning to see what was one of the true, successful, genuine partnerships in NBA history turn to complete shit here. Morey's career has been defined by that masterstroke of a trade he made back in 2012. Getting Harden from Oklahoma City for not all that much and breaking up their dynasty while also turning Houston into a contender and getting an MVP-level player. And it was more than that, even. Like, it wasn't just the success. Harden became the perfect Maury Ball player. Not a very aesthetically pleasing watch, but just ruthlessly efficient. Layups, free throws, three-pointers, 50-point games on 12 shots, all that crazy shit. When he left the Rockets, Maury took out a full-page ad in the Houston Chronicle. It read, quote, James Harden changed my life. An entire page could be dedicated just to James. He not only transformed my life, but he also revolutionized the game of basketball and continues to do so like almost no one has before, end quote. And then when Maury trades for Harden in Philadelphia, you have the infamous photo on the airport runway when he greets him you know he gives him the emotional hug and it looked like two long lost lovers reuniting it was the closest thing i've seen to andy and red on the beach in mexico and now for whatever reason rightly or wrongly harden feels betrayed daryl morey does not view him as a superstar anymore just like the rest of the nba by the way but daryl morey is the guy whose life he changed so here James Harden is, opting in to play for a team that has signaled they are going to spend a boatload of cash next offseason. It's not on him. And Harden is demanding to be traded to a team that is not willing to give up anything of value for him. 
when you have a guy opting into the final year of his contract and demanding a trade and threatening to not honor that contract, that's just a rotten, bad thing. It's just happens way too much in the NBA now. And more than anything, I, I just think it's really wild that James Harden, a top 75 player of all time, and someone who is, again, like I said, he's probably a top 25 player in the league last year. Really good player. Finds himself in a position where nobody really wants him. But for all the reasons I laid out, it's also not that surprising. And then there's the union. If you haven't heard, a certain soccer player by the name of Lionel Messi is coming to town. If you're unaware, Messi has accomplished a few things in his career. Just won the World Cup last December. Just won the Champions League a bunch of times. Just won the Spanish League a bunch of times. He's won the, the Ballon d'Or, which is like the best player in the world, essentially, a bunch of times. His teams in Barcelona under Pep Guardiola are considered one of some of the best teams of all time. I actually remember when my favorite team, Chelsea, beat them in the Champions League in 2012. They just kind of got lucky. I mean, Barcelona had the ball the entire game, just controlled it with all these short passes, and usually they won when they did that. Didn't happen that time, but Messi was always at the center of it. But now it's time to see if Messi can hold up on the biggest of stages if he can survive under the brightest of lights on the banks of the Delaware under the shadow of the Commodore Barry Bridge. So Messi and Inter Miami, by the way, I I get a kick out of the MLS teams adopting European names. Sporting Kansas City and and Real Salt Lake, those are the two that come to mind. They're just the most ridiculous. But Inter Miami's up there as well. Messi's team is playing the Union in Chester on Tuesday night in something called the League's Cup. Does that competition matter all that much to MLS fans? It doesn't really seem like it. But what matters is that Messi is coming to Chester, Pennsylvania, home of the Union and the Chester Clippers as well. And I know there was some initial anticipation a couple weeks ago that Messi would suit up, I think, in an MLS game between the two teams, but that didn't happen. But we got a second chance. And... Because he still might be the best player in the world at 36, he has eight goals and three assists in five MLS matches. That's a lot. So that should be pretty fun for like 18,000 local soccer fans on Tuesday night. I mean, the, the prices looked insane, but I guess that's what happens when the GOAT comes to town. And then that leaves the Eagles, which we'll get into right now. And thinking back to Comcast Sportsnet, one of the best things that they have done over the years is Eagles post-game live. It's one of the few shows from the early years that still lives on the day. And everyone knows what it's looked like over the years. You got Derek Gunn interviewing Brian Dawkins or Brandon Graham outside the locker room. You got Ray Diddy shuffling through his yellow legal pads. The the governor of Pennsylvania doing a weekly sports show while in office. Yes, the governor of Pennsylvania. I always found that pretty crazy. And even if all those guys have left in recent years, that show has still lived on. Preseason football has always sucked, but man, it really sucks now. The Eagles, like pretty much every other team in the league, value the joint practices more than the actual preseason games. So, you know, Jalen Hurts, A.J. Brown, Lane Johnson, Jason Kelsey, Hassan Reddick, Darius Slay, all of those big names 
their real work is going to happen at the Novacare complex this week against Cleveland. And then they won't play in the preseason game on Thursday, just like they didn't against Baltimore. At least I think so. So really there aren't a ton of takeaways from that first preseason game outside of a couple. I mean, for one, John Harbaugh, he, he might like preseason football too much. He might, he might care about the results too much because he played Tyler Huntley, who was the Ravens backup quarterback which considering their starter is kind of an important position in the second half of that game. This is a guy who almost beat Joe Burrow in a playoff game last year. So to play him in the fourth quarter of that meaningless preseason game felt pretty insane to me. He actually got dinged up on the Eagle side though. I I guess the QBs, you know, Marcus Mariota looked exactly like every reporter has been describing him at camp. He makes some plays with his legs, which is an important element of the Eagles offense. I think the RPO stuff will be a more seamless transition than going to Gardner Minshew. But Mariota's accuracy, it's pretty up and down, and he also bails from the pocket super quick if there's even just like a hint of pressure. You know, as for the other QBs, Tanner McKee, good, Ian Book, bad, that's about it. There's other smaller stuff too, like Tyler Steen, who was a high draft pick this year. He played a couple different positions, hopefully... He could slide around a couple different spots, left tackle, right guard, if he gets banged up. But again, not a ton to take away. So today I'd like to focus on the Georgia Eagles. And in the first preseason game, there were two plays that stood out from that group, the Georgia Eagles, as major positives. The first one came on offense, and it was when DeAndre Swift took a handoff from Mariota, and he made a LaShawn McCoy move where... You know, he, he cuts back and made one of the defenders look like a looney tune in the process. You know, that guy completely whiffed against him. And then Swift finishes the run quite nicely by putting his shoulder down and breaking an arm tackle in the secondary. I actually noticed Jeff Stoutland on the sideline after that one. He gave a nice fist pump after that run. It was like that. Yep, that's all I need from the running back behind my line. And of course, right after that run, the Eagles immediately take Swift out of the game and they don't put him back in. He does not need to play another snap until the opener in New England in a couple weeks. Swift obviously makes for a good story because he's the hometown kid. Go prep. Woot woot. I actually think Russ Tucker said on the broadcast that he was sleeping on his parents' couch for OTAs. And that reminded me that I hope Fox or CBS or whoever has Eagles games this season has a camera always focused on his dad in the stands so we can get reaction shots after big plays that strategy paid dividends at Georgia and along with the Kobe Dean DeAndre's probably the Georgia guy whose value should come more in the short term for the Eagles and that's largely because of how the Eagles have viewed the running back position in recent years this offseason Swift was available for cheap because he's on the final year of his rookie deal and for some reason the Lions turned back the clock to 1998 and decided to take a running back in the top 10. So, Howie Roseman was able to trade a fourth-round pick next year and a seventh-round swap to acquire a starting caliber back for the final year of that rookie deal. Swift is cheap. He makes less than $2 million, which means he'll fit perfectly in the running back room. And that is how Howie views it. Like, that's how he views the running back position. Make sure they're all cheap, and then do it by committee. Pay Stoutland's offensive line and draft their replacements with high picks. Pay the quarterback that has to be accounted for on every run a whole bunch of money, deservedly so. 
and then figure out the running back position last. Jimmy Kemsky had a great stat at Philly Voice. Jimmy wrote, the Eagles' four running backs, Swift, Rashad Penny, Kenny Gainwell, and Boston Scott, cost a combined $5.2 million. If you were to create a mega back out of those four guys, all of those guys, their salaries combined, it would be the 16th highest paid running back in the NFL. And even though they're cheap, I'm excited about this running back room. They have complementary skill sets. Swift, you know, if you look back at his past performance, but also read the training camp reports, he has the ability to make plays in the passing game. Penny is a one-cut downhill runner that has the chance to be quite good behind an elite offensive line. As long as he stays healthy, and that's a big if. I, I thought it was interesting that the Eagles gave him a stunning amount of work, like nine carries, I believe, in the first preseason game. It, it felt like they were making him prove that he could take hits. And we know Kenny Gainwell and Boston Scott, they're not stars, but they performed well in big games. Gainwell had 11 touches in the Super Bowl. Scott scored a touchdown in the NFC Championship game. All this is to say, I think the Eagles' philosophy on running backs has proven to be the right one. We saw in the first preseason game, they still can find players like Swift who have a whole bunch of talent. The other play I wanted to point out was made by Jalen Carter, who played only two snaps, but he made them count. And on one of them, he got a one-on-one -on -one and shoved the right guard right to the side and used his quickness to just get right to the quarterback. Now, a lot of people believe that Carter was the most talented player in the draft, and he sure looked like it on that play. It kind of reminded me of this insane highlight reel rush he made against LSU. The only difference being that he didn't pick up the quarterback with one arm this time. But yeah, his night was done after two snaps because he has a good chance of starting, and like Swift, the Eagles got him out of there. And I think just like a lot of other football fans who don't read Mel Kuyper and Dane Brugler, Daniel Jeremiah, and all of these draft nicks to an insane degree, I head into drafts thinking basic things like, just pick the guys from the SEC. Just pick the guys from Batman, Georgia. And you know what? Howie's done a lot of selecting Georgia Bulldogs over the past couple years. On its face, it seems like a good strategy. Georgia has been the dominant college football program over the past few years. There's Carter, who's supremely talented, but fell in the draft due to some off-field questions. There's Jordan Davis, you know, the massive first-round defensive tackle from last year who had what I would qualify as a disappointing rookie season. I, I know defensive tackles take some time to develop, but he certainly wasn't, I don't think, a major impact last year. There's Nicobe Dean, who did not see the field last year behind TJ Edwards and Kaiser White. He's now being counted to fortify one of the Eagles' weaker positions. And then there's Nolan Smith, the, the pass rusher who the Eagles selected at 30 this year when a lot of people thought they would pick him with the Saints pick that they used Carter on. He had an up-and-down debut, but just one game, and people at training camp seemed to be impressed by his athleticism. I guess I forgot Keely Ringo, too. He's got picked in the fourth round as a cornerback, but another Georgia player there. The Eagles are currently in an enviable position roster-wise. I mean, they are absolutely loaded. And they don't need these Georgia players to be firing on all cylinders right away. There's already so much veteran talent on this team that, again, didn't play against Baltimore. But the way that the Eagles stay on top in future years, particularly when Hertz gets more expensive, 
is by hitting on these picks. And they hit on these picks by these Georgia players turning into reliable starters, and maybe even in Carter's case, a star. Either way, I'm pretty excited to watch more from Swift, Carter, and the rest of these guys. I guess that about wraps it up. I I was going to go a little bit longer and talk about you know the state of Philadelphia sports and where all of the four major teams seem to be in terms of championship contention or rebuilding and that's where I was kind of promising more detailed comments on the Sixers, but I think I can save that for another podcast. I, I think I've taken up enough of your time today. So who knows? This could be the end of this experiment, or or maybe it isn't. Maybe I'll come back later this week, this month, tomorrow. I don't know. But anyway, if you've made it through the entire podcast, I appreciate you listening, and I'll sign off now. Thank you. Thank you.